Um, they've also looked at, um, and this is the study, I, in fact, I'm probably most well-known for, I think my tombstone will probably read, had sex and, or had orgasm and an fMRI scanner, didn't have sex, <laughs> was self-stimulated. But, um, you know, when I die, it will probably be on there. Um, and so, yeah, I did participate in a study where I self-stimulated orgasm to look at my own brain activity, mm. um, just, you know, to really look at um, these studies. And what scientists are finding are just amazing things about our reptilian brain. This is really the, we call it the brain's reward system, but it's really more of a motivation system. It's the seat of our drive. What is going on, my friends? Thank you so much for joining me, yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri. Another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast where every single week I'm bringing you a book. I'm reading that book, condensing it down to its core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author on the show and I'm talking about the golden nuggets with them on the show to bring you some high quality content and to save you some time. To me, I love reading books, but I know that it's very tough to get in a book a week. So I read a book a week and I want to make sure that I'm able to bring those insights to you to help maybe spark some new ideas. And if it doesn't spark new ideas, it just gives you depth of knowledge that you can then pull back on. And uh, to me, this is how I add value. Thank you so much, by the way, for everybody who, uh, for everyone who was waiting for the podcast over the last couple weeks. Like I said, the last podcast was taking two weeks off, and last week I got sick, so didn't really want to get on here with my rough voice and my uh, my running nose. So figured I'd take a week off, get back to health, and here I am now. But uh, in any case, uh, big changes for 2018 for the show. Everyone says, you know, New Year's resolutions, big changes, and you know, I always make changes for 2018. I, I always or for for the new year, I've always done that. And for 2018, for the podcast especially, I want to make some changes. One of the first is just integrating my, my personal brand into the show a little bit more. You know, there's no face to it. I very rarely introduce myself, Ryan Caligiuri, on the show. And somebody came to me one day and they said, you know what's funny, Ryan? I've been listening to your show for maybe about a year now. And I had no idea that it was you. And I was like, come on. I'm like, how did you not know? They're like, you don't say your name on the podcast. Your face isn't anywhere on the podcast. Like, I just tune in and I listen. Never thought about that. So for me now, I want to integrate my personal brand, which will help me connect to you better. And uh, I hope that throughout that, then it makes it easier for people to follow me along. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those things. If you want to follow me, I would recommend it at Ryan Caligiuri, because if you're coming here for information, for knowledge, I continue to share that information, that knowledge, and it just kind of gets into a deeper level on uh, all the different social networks that are out there. So uh, you know, really excited about this upcoming year. Lots of new cool things that are coming up. And, uh, you know, just excited to share it all with you. You know, the podcast two years old now. Two years old this January. So we've been at it for not that long. And I'm really happy with the accomplishment that, uh, you know, we've been able to achieve here on Cut the Crap Podcast. 400,000 downloads an episode. I mean, come on. That's, to me, that's awesome. And to me, it's just the beginning. You know, I'm looking at this as the long-term play. You know, this is not going to be a three, four-year thing. I mean, this is 10-plus years that I have here, and it's going to continue to evolve, continue to get better. And I have to thank each and every single one of you for tuning in, for sharing it with your network, because I wouldn't be here continuing to do this if there was nobody out there listening and uh, I wasn't getting positive feedback from you. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much to every single one of you. So enough jibber-jabber. Um, I'll get into how the podcast is going to evolve a little later on because the podcast will evolve in the coming months, coming weeks. But um, as that happens, I will, um, I'll keep you guys updated on that. But in any case, let's crack right into this week's book. So what are we reading? 
This week we're talking about Dirty Minds, How Our Brains Influence Love, Sex, and Relationships by Kate Sukel. This is a different read for the podcast. Now, for 2018, I want to bring something new to you. You know, we typically did business books. We started off there, marketing, sales, innovation, strategy. Then we branched into more self-help. Then we branched into some motivation. Then I got into some science and health. And now I just want to continue to delve deep into different books that I find interesting. Because here's the thing. We, we got to be well-read. We have to have a, a wide depth of knowledge that we can pull from. We can't just read about business books all the time. We can't just read about marketing or self-help. We have to deepen what information we bring into our brains because I do believe that there's something to it where we have different thoughts. We have different ideas, different opinions on things that we might not have ideas or opinions on previous to this. So for me, it's about bringing new information to you. And this to me was a great book to do that with to kick off the new year. So Kate and I, we talk a little bit about her book, Dirty Minds. We talk about how the human brain, how it influences our relationships in relation to love and sex. And she's got some very interesting stories, very interesting information in terms of how the brain works, the type of chemicals that get released when we fall in love. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very interesting read. And I really hope that you guys enjoy uh, my interview with Kate. She's a very passionate person, very intelligent. And uh, she definitely brings a new energy to the podcast. So I was very excited to have her on the show. And I can't wait for all of you to listen. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Hit me up on social media. Again, everything is at Ryan Caligiri. If you don't know how to spell my name, I was going to spell it on the podcast, but just look it up. It's on the podcast cover anyways. It's on the podcast show notes anyways. So just look me up, follow me on there, and let me know what you think. In any case, I will catch you back here at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Kate, how you doing? I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm how al- are you? I'm always good, Kate. I'm always good. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are first, uh, what you do, and why you ended up writing this book in the first place? Sure. Um, well, uh, you said my name, Kate Sukel, and you got it right, so that's your point. <laughs> yes. um, I'm a, a writer and author, um, and I specialize in science, technology, and travel. Um, and, you know, going back to writing the book, I've, I've always been a brain geek. And in fact, that's, I'm trained as a neuroscientist, which makes me very, very dangerous. Um, and that is the bulk of my work. Um, but, you know, I guess, gosh, about 10 years ago now, my marriage was breaking up. And while everyone kept pointing me to the self-help aisle, mm. uh, specifically to uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, mm. um, and actually, in truth, I actually picked it up. And there was this line in that book in the intro that said something like, well, women, if you don't get into this book or if it doesn't make sense to you, it may be because you have too much testosterone in your brain. Interesting. And I remember reading about that, and I'm loosely paraphrasing because it's been a while, but I'm thinking, what does that even mean? I mean, I wasn't growing a mustache. <laughs> Nothing was descending where I couldn't see it. <laughs> what did it even mean to have too much testosterone in the brain? And what did that have to do with, you know, my relationship right. not working? Um, and so while other people might have gone further in the self-help aisle and looking for love languages or something else, I wanted to go to the neuroscience. I wanted to see what researchers were learning about love, uh, you know, from the neuroscientific point of view. So much now, we know that basically the basis of thought, emotion, behavior is the human brain. And if you can think about any, you know, one emotion or drive that messes with thought, emotion, and behavior, it's love. So certainly there should be some answers in there. Um, And that's what I did. I I just started, you know, doing this deep dive into the research and 
uh, the end result was this book. When we look at through the lens of, you know, love, sex, commitment, relationships, we often hear about things like romance and we think about poetry, you know, it's so beautiful. Um, but these topics, they really don't get looked at from a scientific level um, and looking at the brain, for example. So that's why I really enjoyed reading your book because it started to dig deeper into the brain and what happens in the brain, for example, when you fall in love or when you have an orgasm and the different types of experiments that you put yourself under to actually see how the brain reacts when you have an orgasm. It was very interesting um, information to hear about. So why don't we kick this off, actually. One of the first things that I really wanted to understand from you was tell us a little bit about the brain. So in Golden Nugget number one, we look at humans that have been studying the brain for centuries, right? We've been looking at the brain for so long. And, you know, 100 years ago, we really didn't know much about the brain. But now we're learning so much more about the brain. Maybe tell us a little bit about some of your early findings and maybe some of the experiments that you ended up putting yourself through to help learn more about the brain. Well, certainly, you know, we definitely know a lot more than we did 100 years ago, where so much of our research was based on individuals who had brain lesions or postmortem studies of the human brain. Yet, I think most neuroscientists would tell you we're only scratching the surface of understanding the brain even now. But technology has advanced and given us the tools where we can do things like brain scanning and look at what's happening in the brain, what areas of the brain may be communicating with each other, which ones are active during different, you know, events and activities. Um, so, you know, a lot of the studies that are in this book are, are fMRI studies, functional magnetic resonance imaging studies um, that look at brain activation patterns. And they've looked at things from people who are madly in love with their partner, hmm. whether it's a same-sex or opposite-sex partner. They've looked at the brain activity of people who um, you know, are heartbroken. Um, they've also looked at, um, and this is the study, I, in fact, I'm probably most well-known for, I think my tombstone will probably read had sex and or had orgasm and an fMRI scanner didn't have sex was self-stimulated but um, you know when I die it will probably be on there um, and so yeah I did participate in a study where I self-stimulated orgasm to look at my own brain activity um, just you know to really look at um, these studies and what scientists are finding are just amazing things about our reptilian brain. This is really, the we call it the brain's reward system, but it's really more of a motivation system. It's the seat of our drives. Um, and yes, there is a sex drive. Yes, there's a drive for food, but there also appears to be a drive for love. We are a social species. Um, you know, uh, note, I don't necessarily say monogamous species because there's mm -hmm. a hotly debated subject, um, but we really are sort of, um, you know, wired to go back out there and seek out other humans and to love, fail, and love again. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's sure. a lot of stuff out there, and we're still learning, um, but it's also about different chemicals. Uh, dopamine, which is often called a pleasure chemical, that's really a learning chemical. How many receptors you have in certain areas of your brain may make it more likely for you to be, um, you know, m more monogamous or less monogamous um, in men, <laughs> not no, women. Um, there are uh, other studies that look at things like oxytocin. Uh, some people call it the cuddle chemical. I kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit every time I hear it referred to that way. Um, but it's a really fascinating, you know, chemical that, that is released um, during childbirth, also while breastfeeding, but really seems to help 
stimulate certain brain circuits to help bond. Mm. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff. The brain has so much power to it, and we truly don't understand how to leverage the power of the brain. And we maybe take it for granted because it comes as basic equipment in our bodies where we're born with it. It's free. So we don't truly tap into it or think too deeply about our brain or, or the power that our brain has on our bodies, on our emotions, um, on the results that we have in life, whether it be career-oriented or relationship-oriented or, or what have you. But because it comes as this, as this basic equipment, we maybe overlook it. But this book really kind of dug deeper into more deeper levels in terms of understanding the brain. So in Gold Nugget number two, I want you to maybe talk a little bit about the neurotransmitter dopamine. And I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm not really too sure how much I know about this, or even if I'm even pronouncing it, but I didn't really know about this until I read your book. But the basal ganglia, is that how you pronounce it? Or? Basal ganglia. Basal ganglia. Yeah, so- so, Talk to us about that. So basal ganglia, I mean, it's basically what I just called the um, brain's motivation system. And it's called the reptilian brain because it is a very evolutionarily preserved part of the brain. Our basal ganglia don't actually look all that much different from many other species. Um, It's the great big frontal lobe that really sort of puts us, um, well, at least we think it puts us above so many of our primate ancestors. Um, But the basal ganglia, it's really just... It's a motivation system, and it's, you know, there to motivate us to get out into the world and to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can sort of think about the basal ganglia along with the hypothalamus, which I'm sure most people remember from uh, their, their puberty health classes um, that talks about the sex drive and the amygdala, seat of the fight-or-flight response. Mm-hmm. Um, they're implicated in reward processing and learning. And you can sort of think about the brain working a little bit like bribery in a sense. When we go out in the world and we taste food that is really good or, you know, that that states our hunger or if we're spending time with the object of our affections, uh, then basically these areas of the brain give us a little extra boost to encourage us to do it again. It wants us to get out there and, you know, really find all the rewarding things in life. Um, So dopamine is sort of the... Uh, neurochemical that fuels this circuit, although certainly there are other neurotransmitters that work in it as well. But dopamine kind of gets the most attention because what you find is that when you do have that really good experience, whether it be sex or food or, you know, a really satisfying, um, you know, episode of Stranger Things, (laughs) um, what you'll find are, you know, that dopamine just gets released and floods the system. And that's basically telling, you know, the rest of the brain, hey, this is good. We like this. We need to figure out how we got this so we can get it again. So dopamine plays a key role in love, for example. And it's interesting. It's very interesting when people start dating, for example, and they, you know, are infatuated with one another and they find likeness in some of the stupidest things like you know oh we both love strawberry jam oh my god i love strawberry jam too (laughs) we're made for each other this must be fate you know and to me it almost seems like you're hypnotized because maybe you have this dopamine flowing through your brain that's just giving you this heightened sense like is that's what is that what's happening there a little bit. In fact, you know, uh, Samir Zeki, who is a neuroscientist in London, when he first looked at the brain scans of people who were madly in love, he's like, these look like brains on cocaine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just they were so much activation in this reward circuitry, you know, and it, it, you, they looked like junkie brains. Hmm. And, you know, but when you think about that, 
and of course, it's never you, because of course, any time that you've fallen in love, you're you're completely, you know, <laughs> right. stoic and totally reasonable about of it. But when your best friend, you know, starts talking about that strawberry jam, and starts talking, like every conversation <laughs> somehow comes back to how amazing that new significant other is, and you know, they start blowing you off when you're supposed to get together, and they're mm-hmm. not going into work, or they're not doing where they're supposed to be. You know, they, they're acting a lot like a junkie as well. It's just their fix isn't a drug. Their fix is that person. And, yeah, dopamine is the kind of thing that is fueling that really exaggerated response to the stimulus. Um, but, again, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning response. We, we talk about dopamine so often as this pleasure chemical, but really it's a learning chemical. And it's there to help us learn. And, um, you know, what – we may need to learn at that point is this is somebody who is reproductively viable Hmm. and who has a genetic makeup that might help us make really superior offspring. Um, And so I I need to stay with this person for a while and see what happens. Right. So it's interesting how, you know, our our minds get perhaps flooded with dopamine and and our our minds, our brains, you know, they mimic somebody on cocaine, for example, we first start dating, but then, you know, as time goes on, you know, it's just, (laughs) you know, we get more comfortable with each other and maybe that does dopamine sort of go away after a while? Like what happens in our brain at that point? It does. It's sort of like anything else, you know, over time, uh, you get used to it, Mm. right? So you're not going to get the same response the same way that, uh, I don't know, think of like, you know, the first time you had some amazing food. You know, I feel like people who have tiramisu for the first time are like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> but you get to a certain point in tiramisu, you know, it's good, but it's, it's, it's tiramisu. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter whether they actually chopped up little bits of espresso beans <laughs> into, you know, on top. It's, it's still just tiramisu. And um, what a lot of the studies show is it's right about the two-year mark. What you see is brain activity kind of goes down. Mm. Um, you do not see that heightened you know, uh, activity anymore. You don't see that sort of irresistible attraction. Mm-hmm. It just kind of goes down to, hey, you're great. I like you. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense if you think about it because two years is about the time you need to get pregnant, mm-hmm. have that baby, and, you know, have it survive long enough, you know, so it's not eaten by wolves. Yeah. So, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense. And yet, there are certain couples where this never goes away. Interesting. Um, and nobody seems to understand why. There are certain couples that even after decades of marriage will still show this incredibly heightened amount of brain activation when they're just simply looking at a picture and imagining a good memory with their significant other. And there's no as of now, good scientific explanation for that. There may be something about their particular genetic makeup, which just is so perfect that the brain, you know, keeps, uh, you know, going after it. There mm-hmm. may be, you know, just something that they're, they're I don't want to say working on the romance, but <laughs> sure. uh, they keep it surprising enough that, yeah. that they continue to get those um, dopamine floods. Because that's the other thing that happens. It's novelty also sets off Hmm. um, dopamine. So I don't know what it is, but there are certain couples, a certain small percentage that keep that forever. And I don't know. I think that would be exhausting. (laughs) Yet it it, it does sound kind of nice that maybe there is that one person out there for you. No kidding. It is fascinating regardless, though, the fact that, you know, you hit that 
that two-year, you know, whatever, I don't know what you want to call it, but that two-year element of familiarity and all of a sudden, you know, you just start becoming more comfortable. But and then I hear a lot about this, what, what is this, this seven-year itch? What is, what is that all mm-hmm. about? Uh, you know, so the seven-year itch, that's the thing. It looks like it's more that two-year itch. Hmm. Um, although I, in terms of seven years, you know, it's a movie, it's, it, it, people talk about it. <laughs> right. um, but I, I think a lot of times that's just a matter of, you know, you're stuck yeah. in a routine. Yeah. By seven years, you have small kids. Yeah. And so you're watching the same things and eating the same things. For sure. Thing. You mentioned monogamy. And then you started talking about in, in the last point there, um, you know, two years, you know, just enough time for you to have babies so that wolves don't eat you. So you're really talking about this very primitive, you know, um, element of our genes, so to speak. So are human beings meant to be monogamous? So, and it's a loaded question for everyone. And it's funny because, uh, especially when I give talks, I every time I talk about this afterwards, someone takes me aside um, and usually gives me a story about a cheating spouse and mm. um, then wants to tell me why I'm wrong. Um, but so there are species that are what are called socially monogamous. They find one partner. And they stay with them throughout the lifetime. And in fact, a lot of the early work that looks at the love circuitry has been done on prairie voles, which happens to be one of these monogamous animals. But socially monogamous, they have that partner and they return to that partner. But when you look at prairie voles out in the wild, that doesn't mean that, you know, that the, the particular one or the other of the prairie voles are not having sex with others. Right. You will find that when you actually do genetic uh, studies of the offspring, you know, there's a certain amount, about the same amount that you find in the human population, of babies that are being raised by parents that don't necessarily belong to them genetically. Hmm. So even though they have these partners, it's beautiful, it's so cute, everybody loves the emperor penguins, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are staying sexually faithful. Now, here's the thing, though. Prairie voles, you know, they're like little mice. You, if you found one in your house, you'd try to beat it to death with a broom. <laughs> uh, we, we, I would like to think, are um, certainly more sophisticated, um, and certainly our brains are more sophisticated than that. So are we meant to be sexually monogamous? Maybe not, but that doesn't mean that we can't be. Yeah. And certainly, whether it be your particular... Um, you know, moral character, your belief system, whether it's just because you don't want to hurt your partner. Um, I I truly believe it is possible Mm. to be monogamous, but that doesn't necessarily always mean it's natural to be monogamous. That's right. Luckily, we have those great big frontal lobes that can help (laughs) us, you know, the seat of executive function, help us make those decisions. I was, I was hoping that you were going to touch on the prairie voles because that was a very interesting piece of the book (laughs) where, you know, uh, this whole idea of, of, again, coming back to the brain and the different chemical makeup in the brain and what we find when, you know, we dig deeper into that. And I maybe want to reference um, a study from, I believe it was Karolins- the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, where they were looking at the gene that controls vasopressin. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yes. So vasopressin comes up a lot as the monogamy chemical. But before we talk about that, vasopressin got its name because it's involved with vasoconstriction, it's involved with kidney function, it's, it's not just in the brain. But this actually started with prairie vole work. 
um, with uh, Larry Young. And he looked at prairie voles, and basically he tweaked them genetically. Um, and what he found in the prairie voles is by changing the number of receptors for vasopressin, he could change the behavior of the vole. He could take these socially monogamous prairie voles and make them into little casanovas just by um, reducing the number of receptors they had on areas of the basal ganglia. Um, and similarly, he could take montane voles, which are you know, naturally more promiscuous, um, and make it so they have more vasopressin, and all of a sudden they liked to stay closer to home. So this is fascinating, but then you start to think, you know, okay, well, again, this is prairie voles, what does this matter? Um, when the analog gene was looked at in this Karolinska Institute study, what the researchers found uh, was that people who had the variant that meant um, that they were less, uh, they, they had sort of less vasopressin going into these areas, they were more likely to be unsatisfied with their marriages, with their partners. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, it's funny, the headline said, cheating gene or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's the, <laughs> the, the, the researchers were just like, this is not what we said. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting finding because here you have something, a behavior that you could actually modify using genetic engineering in an animal model. And then when you look at that gene in the real world, in humans, you do see an effect. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fascinating, even though we can't call it the monogamy chemical or the cheating gene or whatever, I think what we do see is that there is something about this chemical that really does help regulate whether we're more likely to, you know, be that freestyling, girl-in-every-port kind of guy, or whether we're, we're more you know, interested in, in staying home and focusing on our partner. It, regardless, again, it is very interesting because you're hearing a lot of discussion now where um, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know what you want to call them, um, I don't know, people who are popular on social media and have a voice. There's certain presidents of different companies, health supplement companies, different podcasters, who now are talking a lot about and promoting open relationships as um, something that is more natural to uh, to humans. And the reason why I asked you that question earlier was, you know, is is monogamy, you know, is that something that is is, is practical? Is that the way that humans are are built? Like, are we built to be monogamous? Um, a lot of these fe- folks will come out and they'll say, no, we're not. Just look at how our ancestors are. You know, we, we, you know, men, men, men went around and, you know, they, they, they had sex, they spread their seed and it was about procreation. That's what it's about. And that, that's, that's why men are the way they are today. And I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that belief <laughs> because it's just, well, we, we also drive cars and we wear clothes and, you know, we talk on podcasts and we watch TV while, we didn't do that, you know, thousands and thousands no. and thousands of years ago. So we evolve, we change. So is that just a lame excuse for you to sleep around? I kind of think so. Yeah. So to me, it was very interesting to get a different perspective from a scientific point of view um, from yourself to combat maybe some of these people out there who are arguing for this open relationship. And if anyone's listening to this and you do have an open relationship, by no means am I, um, you know, uh, poo-pooing that at all. If it's right for you and your spouse, then, you know, by all means, go ahead and do that. Um, But it's not right for a lot of people. And in the end, I think you do what's best for your relationship and and what you think is is healthy. But as far as this idea of open relationship, you know, you don't really talk about that in the book, but I don't know if you've ever looked into that at all. Um, What, like, your thoughts on that in terms of, you know, what that what that does to a relationship, how that impacts mm-hmm. the relationship. What are your thoughts on that? 
I think to start, I think that so much of the research has been done on strictly heterosexual, um, this idea that, that you're going to get married at 22 and live forever with the same spouse kind of idea. Um, science, you know, whether as hard as we try for it not to be, is biased by societal expectations. And if there's one thing love and relationships, it is a boatload of societal expectations about what's right, what's proper, you know, what's doable, what's not. Um, I would love to see a lot more work into alternative relationships. Um, there have been a few small studies um, looking at um, polyamory, and they find the same, you know, sort of patterns of brain activation. You know, even if you uh, are in a relationship with Harry and Sue, you and you love them both, you'll you'll see that same pattern of activation. Um, but you know, there has not; those have been very, very small pilot studies, um, and they they haven't really dug very deep. Uh, in terms of, you know, I, I think you said it best. Our ancestors did a lot of things. They would eat raw meat. They, you know, lived <laughs> in right. huts. They were hunter-gatherers. Um, you know, child mortality was so high that, you know, spreading your seed was kind of important or else mm-hmm. you wouldn't end up with, uh, you know, enough living children to carry on right. uh, the, the family and, you know, mm-hmm. the farm or, or what have you. So I don't know that what our ancestors did is necessarily um, <laughs> a, a you know, a functioning argument because so much has changed. Um, but that said, I think it's a matter of going with your gut. What feels good to you? Mm-hmm. If that's the kind of relationship that works for you and you're, you know, doing it transparently and openly and honestly, then I I don't know that why it would be any different um, than a traditional monogamous relationship, mm-hmm. at least from a brain perspective. For sure. And I almost feel like <clears throat> a part of it really comes down to, and we'll touch on that now in this next golden nugget about this idea of attraction, you know, and that, you know, there's certain stimuli that seem to play a role in attraction. Um, but when you look at neurobiology, you know, there's no real clear explanation as to why that is. And, you know, like some people maybe are attracted to, um, you know, tall, dark and handsome men, while others might be attracted to blue eyes or big hands or money or you know nice suits or what have you um and so there's there's a lot of really different reasons as to why people are attracted to certain attributes um certain certain possessions why is that what can you tell us about that this element of 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 you know being attracted to somebody else well you know what's funny about that is i always you know sort of thought that I had a type, mm. um, you know, before I did this research and, you know, tall, strong, dark haired. Um, and what was really funny about doing this work is apparently uh, it's it not so much the looks, it's the genetics. Mm. Um, there was a whole series of studies, they call them the dirty t-shirt studies, um, that looked at basically the smell, underarm odor, and attraction. And I know it sounds so gross, but <laughs> I think if everybody takes a step back, you know, and thinks about most of us have some kind of laundry list about a partner, right? We have all these attributes, probably more women than men necessarily. Um, but, you know, we want a partner who is intelligent and kind and, you know, et cetera. We, we may have, you know, he plays the cello, whatever. Um, but then when you finally actually pair up in a successful relationship, they don't, necessarily meet all or maybe even any of that list that you had. And I think that's because a lot of what we're looking for isn't necessarily physical, but genetic. 
So going back to these dirty T-shirt studies, what they did is they basically just had women sniff dirty T-shirts and ask them to rate the level of attractiveness. And what they found was that women were more attracted to the underarm odor of men who were somewhat genetically compatible. I, I, mean, I say somewhat genetically similar, but they were genetically compatible. They had traits or particular genes that would make for a stronger, hardier offspring. And then there's the creepy factor of this. Mm-hmm. What made them sort of genetically similar was that a lot of times, um, you know, what were some of those genetic components where there were things that were similar to their fathers, which is like, oh, I really am going for daddy. <laughs> Ew. Oh, um, but in some ways it makes sense. You, you, you know, you're, you're looking for something that's similar enough um, genetically that, you know, you can make sure that you'll have healthy offspring, but different enough, uh, you know, so that you have the kind of diversity that will also make it healthy. Um, but it's, it's really all about what attraction comes down to is more about, you know, that genetic information that the body is giving off. Um, and there's a lot of it. And what this is the stuff that just fascinates me because we talk a lot about pheromones, and mm-hmm. that's a hotly debated subject too, whether humans even have pheromones. Hmm. Certainly there are plenty of sprays that are sold and what have you, perfumes. And I, I don't buy into that. But what we do know is that your body doesn't actually keep many secrets. Every time that you sweat, every time your your body is giving off, you know, tons of chemical messages that other people around you can pick up. Hmm. And it's, it's below the level of consciousness. It's not like you get in an elevator next to somebody and say, oh, <laughs> you know, huh. All right. All right. <laughs> you know, he's the man for me. That's right. Um, but, you know, when you actually test people based on some of these odor studies, you find that they're more able, you know, above chance to say whether or not somebody, uh, you know, has an illness or not, mm. uh, has cancer or not. You can, you know, whether they're smart or not. And, uh, you know, some of this is just guessing. You're sniffing a dirty T-shirt. Right. Um, but there seems to be a certain amount of information that our brains are getting from these chemical, you know, sensory messages um, and is processing. And that's really important what, and really helps to facilitate our attraction hmm. to other people. That's interesting. So on that same vein, if you look at uh, human sex hormones, for example, and how they motivate sexual behavior, if you look at the animal kingdom, for example, you see a whole different you know, array of mating behaviors. If you look at uh, mice or rats, they have that reflex mm-hmm. of, what, what do you call it, lordosis? Lordosis? Lordosis. Yeah. Yes. Assume the position. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. What, what, they like, they arch their, the, the female rat arches They basically back, just or... make their, their goodies open so they're right there <laughs> and waiting for, you know, that male right? rat to hit that. So, so Exactly. Um, so that, but then you have baboons and red bums, like the females have red bums, right? And it just yep. sends a signal off too. So it's like, oh, that's very interesting. The animal kingdom has all these different aspects. So now if we look at the animal kingdom and you come to humans, what is it that humans do that maybe gives off, you know, that red bum or lordosis? Do we have something similar to that? You know, (laughs) we do, but it's not necessarily so obvious. Um, Certainly, we no longer show off our private parts in public, (laughs) um, you know, at least not until we've had a few beers. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there is something that changes. Um, so there were a series of studies that looked at women when they were at the most, most fertile day of their cycle. Hmm. 
And what you find is that their behavior changes subtly, but just enough. Hmm. So you'll find that strippers, uh, exotic dancers, um, tend to get more tips hmm. on the day that their fertility is highest. And, it, you know, independent of anything else, you'll find that um, women are more likely to dance with a stranger at a club when they're at their most fertile. So we don't have, you know, big red bums. We don't necessarily, you know, assume the position. And yet we do give off these signals that, hey, I'm fertile. We could make a baby. Let's do this in these kind of very subtle ways. Um, and certainly, you know, humans, we're, we don't want to get pregnant every month. and We don't want to, you know, have babies all the time. It's, it's just the costs are too great, um, you know, from a biological standpoint. But there is something in there that is giving us these signals to say, yes, this is the time, this is when it could work if, if everybody's, you know, kind of down for that. Very interesting. Yeah, you you reference in the book um, psycho social psychologist Christina Durante from the University of, Man of uh, Minnesota, where she talked about, um, or she, her studies found that ovulating women, they bought more revealing yes. clothing, they yes. appeared more interested in men, um, they were uh, interested in going to the club more. So it's it's very interesting how we have these these other like you said very subtle cues. You know they're not big red bums or assume the position like a rat would, but you know smaller subtle cues. But um, you know that's uh, again I, I always get very wary of talking about that too because then you get pigs out there who are just like, hey, she's wearing a skirt. That means you know she's she's down. You know, and it's just like no, that's that's no. not how it is. You know, you know, and, 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 right. And I'd be very interested to see what it is for guys as well, too. You know, like, I don't know what it is. Like, are guys just, do, like you said, their sweat smells a different way. Like, do they look a different way? Do they focus more on their appearance a different way? Have you found any research that shows how guys react when uh, when maybe they're at a more, I don't know, peak time? Well, the thing is, you guys are at a peak time all the time. You have a I billion so. sperm to, <laughs> to, you know, spread around in your lifetime. We have a run on eggs. So True. You know, only usually about 300 over the course of lifespan. So we we have to be picky. There may be more, um, you know, subtle signals coming out from us because there is only a certain time when fertilization can happen. You guys are kind of <laughs> you're ready to go all the time. <laughs> I guess I so guess so. Um, I don't know that it's it's been looked at like that because certainly there are hormonal fluctuations and um, you know when testosterone is high, you do see. You'll see sometimes more aggressive behavior. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily something as, uh, you know, striking as like, you know, two rams battling it out over the female. But there may be some more of that. Uh, but for the most part, since you guys are fertile pretty much 24-7, right. I don't know that you necessarily need that, that same kind of Fair signal enough. going out. Yeah. Fair enough. So what have you found uh, as a result of uh, sex hormones and their impact on the brain? Like what kind of... What kind of chemicals are released? What happens in the brain, you know, when, and, and we might not even know the answer yet, um, you know, as, as far as science is concerned, but um, what is the impact of sex hormones directly on the brain? Well, that's the interesting thing. So many of these areas, the basal ganglia, the hypothalamus, you know, sex steroids like testosterone and estrogen actually work on them. They can work as neurotransmitters. Um, and it, it that's fascinating to me because so often, you know, we think about these things and we think about eighth grade health class and, you know, we, we think that they're helping with 
regulating our menstrual cycles mm. or growing underarm hair or what have you, <laughs> but they really do play these important roles in the brain. Um, and in some ways that you can think of hormones as kind of gate openers. They, they really sort of work with other neurotransmitters. So why might those women be you know, wearing more revealing clothing or more likely to dance with a stranger, it may be because there is that excess estrogen in the body that's working in the brain, working in partnership with other, you know, neurotransmitters in the brain to help make you, you know, a little, behave a little bit more in a risky fashion or be more likely to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the important way to sort of think is of hormones is, is very subtle yet, striking, you know, gate openers. They help these, these, the signaling patterns to happen to just very, you know, change the behavior just enough to possibly lead to a different outcome. Again, when you talk about different chemical makeups that happen in the brain and um, what happens at certain moments, for the most part, you know, it's, it's all very complicated. But then we started talking a little bit about love and hate, where if you look at love, you look at hate on the outside, two completely different things. But when you dig deeper into the brain, you know, they're more closely related biologically than we might think. Can you tell yes. us a little bit more yes, about that? Yes, they are. Um, so, you know, there's always that line about there being a thin line between <laughs> love and hate. That's right. And, you know, what's interesting is, obviously, if you hate somebody, you know, it's not that you're just, you know, you can't be bothered with them. You really hate them. <laughs> That involves a lot of, you know, effort. That involves a lot of feeling. And Mm -hmm. what scientists have found is actually when you look at brain activation patterns, you will, you know, actually find similar, um, you know, activity patterns. So I think that that's really, really funny. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was Samir Zeki again from University College London. You know, he he sort of thought that there would be some similarity between the two states. Um, and again, it's because there's such strong biological sentiments, right? And it, it's it's almost a drive in itself. Um, so they, you know, scanned some brains where it was the same thing as the love study, right? They they looked at people who they hated, and what they found was that, you know, they activated what's called the, the fusiform gyrus. So that's a you know perceptual processing of faces, mm-hmm. um, but they also found other areas. Um, so premotor co- cortex, which is weird because this is an area that's involved with preparation of motor planning, um, the frontal pole, uh, which is a structure implicated in predicting how other people may act. Um, so they're distinct from those of love, and yet they also found, you know, insula and putamen, which are, have shown up a lot of times in, in love studies. So they're, they're different. But, you know, at least from a biological standpoint, it does seem that that whole thin line between love and hate does does hold true. Again, when you look at how the brain functions, we're still figuring it out. You know, we're still figuring out we don't quite understand how the brain works. You know, as we finish up here in yourself, I mean, you did write this book maybe about four or five years ago, I believe. What new mm-hmm. things have, you know, if you were to rewrite the book or if there was any new research that you ended up finding that you wish you could put into the book now, what would that be? 
I think there's been a lot more look at uh, the chemical oxytocin. You know, I, I sort of ragged earlier all about how I'm so sick of people calling it the cuddle <laughs> chemical. Um, but there's been a lot of interesting work that actually shows sort of the dark side of this chemical and how it can actually um, interfere with relationships. And, it, you know, with something that has that kind of reach, um, it makes sense that it would. Um, I, I think I would. what I'd like to see, and there isn't enough of it, um, I'd really like to see a lot more research that does look at alternative relationship, um, you know, styles. I'd like to see more research on going beyond, you know, sort of just this, okay, we're putting you in the scanner and your brain lights up. How can we have more realistic scenarios that look at attraction or look at, um, you know, the different aspects of love? But I think also what I'd really want to put in the book at this point is in the past few years, there's been this huge emphasis on what they call the connectome. It's the connections, the circuitry between different regions of the brain. And what we're learning is that these connections and and where they go, how they operate, how efficiently they operate are so affected by individual circumstances, both by your genetics, your biology, if you will, and then also your environment. And so many of these circuits, if you grow up impoverished, if you grow up um, in an abusive situation, are are permanently altered. And and these are circuits that go directly into these love areas. Um, So I'd like to see, A, I would have liked to make more of an emphasis on the fact that all of our brains are very different. Um, and while the brain remains plastic, because we're so different, your mileage may vary. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'd also like to see more studies looking at this circuitry and, and how it may be influenced by our early relationships, um, you know, those with our parents, our teenage relationships, and, and so on. Um, because I think, you know, from a social psychological standpoint, we, we know that matters. Mm. Um, but how is it affecting the neurobiology? Right on. Kate, I'm so grateful for you coming on the show. You know, you brought a different type of energy to the show that we haven't had before, focusing on a different type of topic, and I hope that people out there who are listening um, maybe take more of an interest in um, what we're discussing here, the brain, um, as far as, um, you know, how our brains influence uh, relationships, how they influence love, how they influence sex, to look deeper into that and to do more research and to learn more about it. But Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anybody wants to get in touch with you or um, uh, follow anything that you're doing, how can they go about doing that? Sure. Uh, my website is katesukel.com, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L.com. Um, I overshare on Twitter as at Kate Sukel, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L. Um, and you can also find me on Facebook. Beautiful. Fantastic. Well, Kate, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, my friends, there we have it. That's Dirty Minds, How Our Brains Influence Love, Sex, and Relationships by Kate Sukol. I told you this was a different one, and I love it. I absolutely love it because to me, I just I wouldn't have read this book otherwise if I didn't have this show. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to hit up the bookshelf. I'm going to take a different book off the shelf, and I'm going to read about something I don't traditionally read about. Now, for me, it was interesting. I like to understand how the brain works. Um, to me, I didn't really have an understanding of the brain. Clearly, I didn't know how to pronounce, you know, basal ganglia. So, you know, for me, it's all new information, and all new information is good. It brings more depth to character. 
It gives me more things to talk about, gives me different perspectives, and who knows where that new knowledge will take me. I'll tell you right now, it definitely has piqued my interest, and I'm going to be doing more reading, more research into the brain, and I will definitely bring on more authors to talk about the brain, how it works, how it affects you know, our emotions, our body, you know, our physiology, what have you. And uh, to me, I'm always looking for something new. So if you have any recommendations for different types of books that you think I should read and the authors that I should bring on this show, again, hit me up on social media. Let me know um, what kind of books I should be reading. Again, it's at Ryan Caligiuri. Also, I didn't tell you at the very beginning of the show, but I would be remiss if I didn't say this. This quarter, we're giving away a new prize. Last quarter, we gave away a prize to, I forgot her name, but somebody in New Jersey. We gave her a MacBook Air. This quarter, I haven't figured out the prize yet, but if you've already given me a rating, if you've already given me a review, then you're all covered. You're already in the draw. If you haven't given me a rating or a review, then definitely get on iTunes, get on Google Play, whatever platform you're listening on, rate, review it, take a screen capture of it, send it to me by email at uh, ryan.caligiuri at me.com, or just send it to me on social media, whatever, I'll see it. I just got to make sure I see it so I can get you entered into the draw, and I'll get you your prize for this quarter. So at the end of this quarter, I think we'll do it around end of March, and um, I'll let you know what, what, uh, what the prize will be. I'm not too sure what it is, but next episode, I'll uh, definitely let you know. But in any case, I appreciate every single one of you tuning in again this week. Thank you so much for listening to Cut the Crap Podcast. And I will catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with the author. And again, every single week I'm here just saving you a little bit of time. Take care, everybody. Have a fantastic week. I love you guys. Oh.